Welcome to Innovation Files. I'm Rob Atkinson, founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. And I'm Jackie Wisman. I head development at ITIF, which I'm proud to say is the world's top-ranked think tank for science and technology policy. This podcast is about the kinds of issues we cover at ITIF, from the broad economics of innovation to specific policy and regulatory questions about new technologies. If you're into this stuff, please be sure to subscribe and rate us. It really does help. Today, we're going to talk about numbers or data, where they came from, how they evolved, and where they're going in the future, given the fact that ITIF has had its own Center for Data Innovation now for probably over a decade. It's an issue that we take quite seriously, understanding the data economy and how it's evolving and what role government plays. Our guest is George Skiatis, the former director at Statistics Canada Center for Special Business Projects. His new book, Number Savvy, From the Invention of Numbers to the Future of Data, shows how numbers were invented and used to quantify our world. It also explains what quantitative data means for our lives. He's joining us from Ottawa, where he's based, and we're happy to have you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you both. We'll start with an easy one. Why did you write this book? This uh, question has actually been at the heart of my thinking in the early days when I started to uh, realize that, uh, you know, it's a book I'm writing because I didn't know that from the uh, get-go. So there's a number of reasons uh, for that. Let me start by saying that uh, our societies have done, you know, a good job in the area of uh, literacy. Unfortunately, though, historically, we haven't done a very good job in the area of what we call uh, numeracy. So there's still a among many people, a certain amount of you know confusion when it comes to statistics and numbers, and uh, in fact, uh, at times even uh, you know regrettably, some people say I'm not a numbers guy and they shrug it off uh, with some sense of uh, pride even. So one of the reasons for this book, in that sense, is to you know contribute uh, you know the proverbial stone to the edifice of statistical. Uh, literacy, you know, numeracy as well, to feel more, you know, comfortable, you know, with numbers and so on. Another reason uh, has to do with, uh, let's call them the uh, geopolitics of our time. Now, things have changed uh, by leaps and bounds over the last, uh, you know, 20 years because of technology and other factors. And now, data are much more in, much more acceptable than they used to be and everybody's a data you know convert there's a newfound love affair you know with data which is very very good and it's a sign of progress in my books but at the same time this uh, necessarily means that uh, mathematically the tent of uh, data people is much bigger than it's ever been and there's many solitudes in there so communication becomes more of an issue than it has been historically and by knowing how we got to this point in you know, the evolution of data from the, the end of the 20th century to the beginning of the 21st, I believe is uh, you know, crucial to help you know, communication between all the people under the tent. Lastly, I would say an additional uh, you know, reason that brought me to this book is that uh, I'm a student of data uh, as well, and I read uh, many, many books on data. It's something I've enjoyed my whole you know, life, and I still do. I realized at some point that, especially now with so much interest about you know, data, the majority of those books, if not all of these books, they are written by keen uh, observers of the data you know, world, like you know, journalists and academics and so on. 
I'm a practitioner of data. I produce an enormous amount of data in my life. I've done my fair share of damage, you can say. So I believe uh, by using the perspective of a data producer as well uh, was, uh, you know, needed. And I would like to think that it has a small contribution to all the other books and all the literature you know, that exists in numeracy because of the perspective I have as a producer of data and how we have come to the point we are now. And this has also the seeds of how we may want to move you know, forward. George, you mentioned the, one of the three reasons, and, and that's the issue of numeracy. We've reported several times a study, I believe it was the Educational Testing Service of the U.S., but I could be wrong that found that of college seniors in their last semester, only 31% were numerate. And numeracy is not knowing calculus. It's just pretty basic stuff. And only 31% were numerate. I'm struck by uh, the other fact that another factoid I love to repeat constantly is in the U.S., uh, around 90% of kids in high school take geometry, but about 8% take statistics. And I find that appalling. I, I think the single most important thing you need to learn in high school, in my opinion, besides Algebra 1, is statistics. Way, way more beneficial than Algebra 2 or calculus, unless you want to become a scientist or engineer. But we don't teach statistics, and yet there's so much value in our day-to-day -day lives with statistics. What do you think? I fully agree, you know, with you, uh, you know, your assessment in my mind is bang on, you know, great assessment of what, you know, we experience. And in fact, uh, this is exactly, you know, saying in other words, why I bother to write this book as well. And, you know, why many people, you know, these days are trying to help, you know, the area of numeracy. As we said, just to add a bit more meat to what uh, uh, you said, uh, going back to the 60s, the 70s even, and so on. It was okay not to be able to handle you know, numbers uh, very well. It was okay. Never good, but it was acceptable because you know, the majority of people, as I said, had a fear or confusion about numbers. And they even you know, wore it as a badge of honor. I'm not a numbers guy. And you had uh, uh, you know, lawyers and highly uh, educated people, highly educated people, highly literate people who would say, oh, a billion with a B or a million or a billion. I don't know. It's a big number. Nonsense. There's a big difference between a million and a billion and a trillion. There is no such thing as an excuse this day and age for students not to be able to tell the difference between a million and a billion and so on. As I said, especially from the United States, many efforts have taken you know, place, many books and good academics have written, contributed, how you can tell the difference and separate orders of magnitude and so on. This has been very, very positive and it's part of progress. Coming to your issue now these days, I fully you know, agree, you know, curriculums and how they uh, evolve and develop, they should be part of the answer to the fact that our society these days cannot function like that in the 60s and 70s. We need people who know numbers, they understand numbers. Data, as we say, are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. You can't step outside of your front door without encountering uh, you know, data, without having to deal with data, with data to understand issues, to deal with issues, and so on. So it should be part of the curriculum as one of the many efforts. We need much more than curriculums, curricula, I should say. We need much more, but that should be there. 
Another point to mention to you know your intervention on that front is that you know numeracy and you know literacy are not some kind of a dichotomous you know concept as people might have thought in the past. And we used to ask, are you literate or you are not literate? And you got the next. You say 90% are literate and 10% are not literate. What did it ever mean? Not only what it means today. Uh, numeracy is the same. We should approach them as some kind of a a continuum is not a dichotomous variable, it's a continuum. So even I, I know numbers, I love numbers, but the skills I have now may not be sufficient for you know 10 years from now. Or the skills I have may be those of a driver as opposed to someone who can fix a car. So we need people who know how to fix a car, we know people how to build the engine of a car, and then we know people who know how to just uh, drive the car. All those uh, segments in a continuum line for data are there, and the high school uh, you know, students should be exposed to a lot more data. And as I'm saying in uh, the book, they should know that data don't fall like manna from the sky. They are produced, and that brings us to the whole thing. What data are produced, how they're produced, what do they mean, and when you have them, what do you do with them? And all that, which is a very big package, but to start Unpacking it, we need to start exactly from where you said, uh, educate people from a young age to be comfortable around the idea of numbers and data. One, one of the big problems in the U.S., uh, we've done some research on this, haven't published it yet, is a number of the major colleges and universities, particularly state universities of the U.S., require four years of math, but do not allow statistics to count for that four-year requirement which, again, I find beyond absurd, beyond absurd. Uh, it's just like saying this is, hey, you can take it if, you're, if, if you want, but kids aren't going to take five years of math. They're not going to take four years of math and statistics. So just to your point, I, I agree. It's something we've got to really stress that the whole education system has to integrate statistics and data in a much deeper way, partly because there's all this data analytics going on now. It's not just the generation of statistics, but it's data analytics everywhere we look. Yes, yes, absolutely. Another point uh, I fully you know, agree with you um, makes makes an awful lot of sense uh, uh, in my mind, and uh, it's part of uh, the exposure we have now as a society. You hear much more, you know, data analytics, and this, you know, what it means in practice as well is that you know data have moved out of where they used to be between a statistical office and a government, for example. Now it's in uh, every business. Every, I mean, you know, data is a business of every business, from the banking sector to the telecommunications sector to uh, agriculture. You know, there's agriculture, just to give you an example, you know, with the revolution of data, you know, the book, you know, makes a joke, you know, with the data a company like John Deere has, which everybody thinks of, you know, tractors or something, you would be a fool to think of John Deere as an agricultural company. It's a data company. It's a data company. So things have changed to such an extent that with analytics and all the noise and so on, data are no longer the prerogative of uh, some kind of a secluded circle between you know politicians and policymakers, I should say, uh, and statistical guys, but it's every business and every citizen. My son, who's off to get his PhD in the fall in computer science, uh, his job before that was with a company in Silicon Valley, uh, which I'll give a commercial to, called Farmers Business Network. And it was a venture-backed startup that works with farmers all across North America, farmers and ranchers. But it, one of the, its business models, it collects data 
and then does bigger scale analysis on all the data so that there's a lot more insights and learning that can go on about how to do farming and ranching a better way. So right exactly to your point, Georgia, that's all about data now. Yeah, yeah, no, we're saying exactly the same thing. Uh, yes, uh, you know, farming nowadays, you know, you can make another statement is uh, more about, uh, you know, data than uh, pesticides or something like that. It's more about data. And if you want to find you know, the biggest example, maybe of them all, given that, uh, you know, you're in uh, the U.S., uh, baseball, you don't have to go. Baseball was practically revolutionized by data. That's very well uh, documented. And it's one of the good examples. Again, it's not you know for policymakers, it's not for our health, it's not for the environment. Still, it's for a very important sport, and it was changed by data. We don't need to go farther than that. Not to keep jumping in, Jackie, but I just have to say I have I have a great book on I'm a big basketball fan, and this book has analyzed every shot taken in the NBA for the last 30 years. Unbelievable. And it shows definitively that Steph Curry is the greatest three-pointer of all time. And he's Canadian. <laughs> is he? yeah. No, 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 I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, Seems like he's Canadian. You know, no, who, you know who was Canadian was, uh, was that great uh, point guard, uh, Steve Nash. Nash. Of course. Steve Nash is Canadian from Vancouver. Yeah. Of course, of course. He's an amazing guy. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Jackie, I don't know if she will have the time to read, uh, you know, to analyze every shot ever made in basketball. But this is this is actually this is a bit, uh, a bit uh, uh, of a segue. If you allow me to make one more you know, comment in this part of the discussion is that data now, I mean, it's, you know, just to see you know, the magnitude of how things have you know, changed and you know, they evolved the last you know, 20 years along. In the older days, because we couldn't handle, you know, data, you know, very well, most of the data, what we would call macro data, the GDP or unemployment rate, inflation rate, macro, for the macro economy. People could not handle micro data for people, for businesses, for buildings, even any kind of micro data. The new kinds of data now, they are way below the micro. They are data smithereens, I call them, uh, in the book. And you have to put many of them together to arrive at micro data which eventually have to be aggregated to arrive at macro data, which is the only data we could handle in a paper and uh, in a paper kind of uh, world uh, in the past, you know, pre-digital, pre-80s. Because people are asking me, why today everybody cares about uh, micro data? Well, nobody cared in the 50s and 60s, and it was, and then you have, you know, privacy and confidentiality. The main issue is not privacy and confidentiality, is that in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, nobody could handle micro data. Neither the users you know, nor the producers, because it was paper-based. And then we came to the idea of admin data that you know, became and are still a big thing compared to survey data because they could be digitized and dealt with. And then now you have uh, you know, students who can handle you know, data more than professional statisticians half a century ago. This idea also, you know, with the basketball shots and so on, is one more indication that we handle enormous amount of data below the micro data, which was our fear in the past, and now is, uh, you know, the low end of our knowledge. Well, the subtitle of your book references the future of data, which is also the title of the book's closing chapter. So what do you think the future holds for data? I know all about it. I can tell you all about the future <laughs> of data. And uh, in fact, uh, it's, uh, you know, the subtitle uh, 
of the book and the title of the last you know chapter and in fact uh, at the beginning of you know the chapter a, a page or two starts exactly as i told you now that i can tell you exactly now the future of data and i have item one item two item three and at the end after i tell you everything that can happen i tell you also just kidding you i don't i'm not a futurologist i don't have a crystal ball and i don't really know what will happen in the future of data but the important thing the book does is to bring us as to where we are now. How did we get to this point? All the forces that have brought us to this point are still there. They are not going to not be there after you and I have been talking, after the, after, you know, the interview. They are still there. They brought us from the 50s, that all that you know, started in the official statistics to 2023, and they are still there. If we follow the forces, we can have a very good, uh, idea of what would happen. That's the first thing, and I will uh, elaborate on that. And the second big thing is that whatever is going to happen is not going to happen without us. How we will behave, uh, react uh, as a society, as a government, as a lawmaking you know, community in the next few uh, years has a lot to do with the future of data especially when it comes to how we're approaching things like privacy and confidentiality. People are very confused right now because of the social media and the new data, the big data, we call it, all the data that didn't exist until the last uh, you know, few years. And now they have everybody you know, confused, even those who have those data, as well as those who would like to get their hands on those data and so on. There's all kinds of issues, but let me let me take a stab on a few of them you know, for the future of data. The sure thing, in my mind, I'm convinced about that, the future will have much more data than we have had up to now. If we feel today that we're inundated you know, with data, we've never had more, which is true, as the expression says, we ain't seen nothing yet. The future will have a lot more data than we feel we have now. That's number one. Number two, which sounds you know, like a paradox, in the period of abundance of data, we have an abundance of data, everybody says so, I have never heard more complaints from people that they can't find the data they need. The data gaps seem to be everywhere. And you say, how can that be? We've never had more data, we agree on that, and yet the data gaps and the shortage of data have never been felt more. Why? Because we use more. So it's not a paradox. I'm explaining that it's not a paradox, but it could be you know, perceived as a paradox, but it will be part of the future. In the middle of a lot of data, there will be data gaps, and uh, miraculously, the data someone needs are the data that are not there, and it continues to happen. And that's what I did in my job for 30 years. Almost I tried to cover the data that are not there, not to sell the ones that are there. But you know, that's an aside. Another thing that's going to happen in the future of data is uh, from all uh, the forces that we have uh, now uh, at work, is that uh, analysis, which is a, a higher you know, value-added activity to move from uh, you know, data to uh, insights and uh, actionable uh, knowledge, we need uh, analysis. Analysis used to start you know, with a question a policy question or a business question. How do I improve my profits? How do I increase my profitability, my market share? How do I improve you know, my society, my neighborhood? It was a question. And you say, I need you know, data, you know, research and analysis. Now, analysis can start more from just because we have a lot of data, even you know, without a question. That's what some people, in my interpretation, have called the death of theory. 
theory may die, and you can have, just because you can put your hands on all kinds of data and you have the technology to uh, manipulate that you didn't have in the past, a lot of analysis may be happening not because anybody asked anything and so on. Now, what could that lead to? I'm imagining. Since it can be done, I don't want to say by every Tom, Dick, and Harry, but it can be done by anybody, really, a student or in a basement or somewhere, there would be a lot of findings in quotes that will be confusing people. So I see a big amount of confusion uh, in the horizon because there would be a lot of findings and who's going to check them? That's why every chapter in my book has fact-checking tips because it will come with a lot of disinformation and misinformation, either accidentally or maliciously. The good data will come packaged with a lot of bad data. Who's going to separate that? If George, because he spent 30 years in statistics, can tell the difference, I will be too busy to take care of all of you. <laughs> Someone has to be doing that. So it's upon all of us to be able to have some sort of a mechanism and a numerate society uh, is very important, but it's not enough. Uh, it's a necessary but not a sufficient condition to do all the fact-checking that would have to be there. But the fact is, I can see for, for the longest you know, time, new uh, insights and disinformation will be living, will be cohabitating on the same shelf. Another thing I can see for the future, because of that, because of the impurity in statistics, who's producing you know, what and what it means and how do we use it and is it true, is it not true, there will be a lot of uh, resistance you know, movements. Some of the purists would want to have boutiques you know, for statistics. A small thing, not everything, but it will be perceived of a higher quality and you can pay you know, a higher price. In the interest of time, another thing I can see for the future, of course, is that a lot of data will not be produced by people. It has started. It's not uh, my, you know, my uh, imagination. It has started. Many data are produced you know, by sensors and so on, and eventually they're aggregated by other machines. So the production of data you know, by machines has started a little bit, and I don't want to get there today, but you know, with uh, AI, artificial uh, intelligence, you know, the sky is uh, you know, the limit. Uh, it's a bottomless pit. Uh, it can absorb any data you can throw at it. It's never enough to fit that beast, and you know the rest of the story. There's one more you know, dimension here. Because of uh, the proliferation of data, and it could be uh, overwhelming to know and to deal with, I can see also ingestion of data by machines. Not only the production of data will be done by machines, but part of the consumption will be done by machines. Machines will be programmed to get the daily uh, release of the CPI or the GDP or the unemployment rate before any human goes. It will be taken by a machine, put in some kind of an algorithm, so I can see even in the future the production and the consumption of data done outside of humans. Those are some of the things I can see for the future of data. But as I said, I'm not a futurologist. I'm just a statistical guy. I have no crystal ball. But if you follow the trends that are happening now, you will see. Just to mention the last thing, it will create in the new data uh, environment with statistical offices and uh, Google and the social media and others and uh, the utilities will have a lot of data in the banks, it will be very interesting on, uh, on the one hand and, and uh, you know, confusing uh, on the other because someone has to 
separate uh, you know the good data from uh, you know the bad data in that sense and there will be you know partnerships which you can call uh, you know competitive uh, you know friendships so when you have uh, you know facebook collaborating with the uh, oecd or small businesses this is something that would have been unheard of 20 years ago and now you have a giant uh, in the data world like the uh, oecd collaborating with a giant in the social media, Google, and they produce, you know, data. So these strange, uh, you know, bedfellows are happening a lot. There's many examples. I list many uh, in my book. And I can't say this will be lasting. It will be lasting, but it may be changing. It's not one of those that because two players, uh, you know, know, collaborated, it will stay like that. In fact, many of those may very well be uh, ephemeral uh, ephemeral, you know, partnerships that don't have a lot of, uh, you know, traction. But all that depends partly, as I said, on how we are going to deal, you know, with the issues of, you know, privacy and uh, confidentiality. George, that was really, really fascinating. I could ask many more questions, all these issues, particularly machine to machine to machine. I think that's going to be a fascinating area. Uh, but unfortunately, we have to wrap up. Uh, so I just want to say thank you so much. And I'm looking forward. I have your book. I'm looking forward to reading. I hope everybody else uh, listens, listening does as well. Every good thing has to come to an end. And this has to. I really appreciate it, uh, you know, Jackie and you, uh, Rob, uh, you know, for the invitation to join you. I really uh, enjoyed it. And uh, I can't uh, you know, thank you uh, enough for this. And I hope that some people are interested in the you know, they look at data a bit more or differently than they had in mind before this. That would be a wonderful outcome. And again, it was our pleasure as well, George. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And that's it for this week. If you liked it, please be sure to rate us and subscribe. Feel free to email show ideas or questions to podcast at itif.org. You can find the show notes and sign up for our weekly email newsletter on our website, itif.org. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at ITIFDC. We have more episodes and great guests lined up. We hope you'll continue to tune in.